Britney Runs a Marathon is a film not so much about how others see you, but how you view yourself. It's a movie about body shape and weight and the notions created by people who mostly judge us by how we look. That's from Bob Bloom of Journal and Courier out of Lafayette, Indiana. One of the films we're reviewing this week, Britney Runs a Marathon. Uh, we'll talk all about it. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. As always, appreciate you guys uh, giving us some love. Please do go to Apple and not only subscribe, but unsubscribe. Subscribe again. Tell some other people to subscribe. Spread the word here as much as you can. Please, let's get those subscriptions up. It's now fall movie season. Let's go ahead and do this. Um, here's a couple of reviews here from Apple Podcasts. This is from Goods 27 Absolutely amazing. Miss the old crew, though. It's okay. Riz CT, I don't even like movies that much, but I love Adnan. Five stars. Yeah, go ahead. I rank my movies, by the way, to Formate Police, but you can rank yours at a five stars. Now, here's one from Drake Walker. Can't get enough. Five stars. Adnan and Joe are an absolute riot. Their tasteful commentary gives me a reason to look forward to Wednesday mornings each week. I'll admit I wrote this to hopefully hear you read it next week. All right. Completely obvious. So while I have your attention, could you please tell me each of your favorite movies from Andre Tarkovsky and Bella Tarr and why? Hope that's not too much to ask. Drake going obscure here. Tarkovsky, I will go with The Sacrifice, just because I think it's a very uh, humanist fable. And um, remember seeing it years ago and appreciating Tarkovsky's very deliberate style. Uh, Solaris, obviously, very famously. Clooney remade, so that's one that uh, more people would know. I cannot speak to Bellatar. I do not know the filmography of Bellatar. Joe, do you, do you want to talk about either Tarkovsky or Bellatar? You know, I, I, Tarkovsky, I've only seen the movie The Killers, and I saw it in college about 10 years ago, so I will have to make that my number one. And then, I'm yeah, the other one, I no, I, I do not have a speaking point for that. We're going to bass on Bellatar. Um, we did get a previous comment here about, I'd like you to review past movies, maybe movies people have missed. So I do want to talk about Tootsie, which I watched uh, for the first time in a long time. The movie came out 37 years ago. I mean, this is 1982. The movie was released, and I watched it again, and I found it thoroughly enjoyable. For those who are unaware of what it is, it's Dustin Hoffman dressing up as a woman. Okay? That, that's the entire movie. Right? It's two hours of Hoffman dressed up as a woman. If you want the actual story, yeah, he plays a, an actor named Michael who cannot get cast in a role. He's increasingly frustrated. He's upset with his agent, played brilliantly by Sidney Pollack, who directed the film, but is also a very good actor. And they've got a sequence back and forth where, you know, Pollock is admonishing him for the way he played a tomato. And he's like, you're a tomato. What kind of direction did you want? And Hoffman's like, well, nobody told me. And it's amazing because it works on multiple levels. Dustin Hoffman has a reputation for being a very difficult actor for a guy who's, you know, not combative, but can be temperamental in the service of the story. He's not being difficult to be difficult, but he's difficult in that he wants things to get right. And he's very stubborn and hard-headed. And um, people love him because he's such a great actor. So they're willing to put him in the movie, but he's not easy on directors. And in fact... It's meta commentary because not only is Hoffman playing an actor who can be difficult to deal with, but apparently he was difficult on the set of Tootsie. And Sidney Pollack, who he's sparring with playing his agent, was actually the director of the film. And he spoke with the fact, yes, we had a lot of arguments about it and it was challenging. But, but Hoffman comes from a good place and ultimately we're making the best movie possible. So, you know, you don't mind it as much as you may mind it from other actors. So they got that whole sequence there. I mean, one of the funniest lines is afterwards when Hoffman first dresses up as a woman. And he fools Sidney Pollock into thinking that, you know, he's somebody else. And then when he goes in there, he drops his voice. He goes to his regular voice. He's like, it's me. It's me. It's Michael. It's your favorite, you know, favorite client. And right away, Pollock goes, oh, my God, Michael, I begged you to get some therapy. <laughs> such a funny line. And such a good script. Uh, Larry Galbart. Steve Parisman is listening to Cinephile. Steve is a good friend from my days at ESPN. He always listens. And the other day when I said I watched Tootsie, he said, how about Galbart, the guy who also wrote MASH? How talented was he? The, the funniest line that I think people have seen definitely. And the reason why I watched the movie, it was because I watched the CNN 
you know, at the movies. And so when I saw the 80s sequence, I said, you know, I haven't seen Tootsie in forever. So let me go revisit that. It happened to be on TCM. And uh, the line is where Hoffman first is going in for the audition, dressed up as uh, Dottie. And uh, the casting director says, can you pull back a little to make her look a little more attractive? And the camera guy says, how do you feel about Cleveland? <laughs> Such a funny line. There's so many great one-liners. And the sequence where Hoffman finally reveals himself that, you know, he's a man dressed up as a woman. That whole sequence is amazing because it actually services the story and it's also a great scene. Like he's giving this monologue as a Southern character and eventually drops his voice to a man as he rips the wig off and it's perfect directing by Pollock because he cuts to all these cutaways of like the camera guy passing out, the director's reaction. Dabney Coleman's like, oh, I knew it. That's why she wasn't into me. And then you see Bill Murray who wraps it up who of course is playing the sardonic best friend who says, that is one nutty hospital. Uh, if you haven't seen Tootsie before, like I said, it's Hoffman dressing up as a woman, and it's really funny, and it really plays well today. Terry Gore, uh, Jessica Lange won an Academy Award for supporting actress Dabney Coleman, I already mentioned. There's only one real notable weakness. That is the musical montage, and the music in general is horrific. This is 1982 pop music at its worst. I mean, it is so painful. There's one sequence where Hoffman goes to the farm with Jessica Lange. I mean, it is just atrocious. The synthesizers and the music, oh my God. We should just flush. We should re-edit it and just say, let's just take the music out. It's not going to work for the story, or put some other generic, you know, movie music in there. I would have preferred that. Uh, as far as newer releases, oh, by the way, I also saw Jim Carrey's "I Love You, Philip Morris." I'd never seen the movie. I'm on this Jim Carrey kick. You know, I never saw me myself and Irene until about a month ago, and that was funnier than I expected. I had avoided it because I had heard mixed reviews uh, from Carrey and, and the Farrelly brothers together, but I actually thought it was pretty funny. Maybe I'm just in Jim Carrey. Uh, mode and i just missed the fact all those broad comedies that he used to make in the 90s but i actually thought there were some inspired moments and especially when he turns into hank who's uh you know the schizophrenic who gets all angry and doesn't take any guff and i thought he had good chemistry with renee zellweger wasn't surprising the fact those two were an item especially the way that carrie looks at her on screen you could tell this guy was clearly smitten uh i love the sons in the movie they're really funny as well so i already enjoyed me myself and irene uh 18 years after it was released i rewatched ace ventura which i spoke about recently on the pod and got a lot of comments uh, on Twitter as well. So then I said, okay, let me watch I Love You, Philip Morris, which I'd never seen. It's Jim Carrey playing a gay con man who falls in love with Ewan McGregor. So this is the 10th anniversary of that film. I'd never seen it. So I said, let me, let me check it out. And um, I, didn't think it, I didn't think it added up to some of its parts, but I did think it was very well acted by Carrey and by McGregor. Here's the synopsis, if you like. Stephen Russell becomes a cop, gets married, starts a family after a terrible car accident. He vows to be true to himself. He comes out of the closet, moves to Florida, finances a luxurious lifestyle with bad checks and credit cards. In prison, Stephen meets Philip, a mild-mannered inmate who becomes the love of his life. Determined to build a beautiful life with his lover, he embarks on another crime spree. Again, if it's notable, if you like those actors, and I think I would definitely recommend it, uh, certainly was in your face with the gay content, especially at that time. You go, oh, okay. Um, it was definitely forward-thinking and explicit. I remember Jim Carrey was on with Letterman. I remember Letterman kind of said something to him, like, you know, how hard was it to play? And I remember Carrie was so annoyed with Dave for that question. He's like, what do you mean how hard was it to play? Like, I'm playing a gay guy. Like, what, what do you mean? I, I'd have to go back and look at the interview again, but I remember it was, like, cringeworthy. I mean, Carrie would not let Letterman off the hook for asking a question, which he thought was completely inappropriate and ridiculous. But um, as far as the movie itself, if you've never seen it before, if you're a fan of Jim Carrey, I would recommend it. It's got, uh, it's got elements of comedy. It's a little bit tragic at times. I would probably give it three Maple Leafs. I didn't think it was great, but... I did enjoy it as it uh, completes my Carey filmography. Next up, we're going to have to watch uh, Mr. Popper's Penguins, which was a <laughs> critically reviled film. Came out, I think, in 2011. It was like, all right, Carey's going to go back to those broad comedies. I'm like, no, 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 no. He, he doesn't have what it takes. It's not, 
It's not exactly the inspired comedy of Liar Liar. And speaking of comedies, I also watched Dave Chappelle's Sticks and Stones. My cousin Celine recommended it to me. He's a loyal listener of Cinephiles. I said, all right, fine. If he recommends it to me, I'll watch it. Even though I'm okay on, Chinef- on uh, Chappelle, I think he's all right. I, I wasn't a devoted to fan of the show. I didn't, you know, lose 10 pounds, and all of a sudden they announced that Netflix was going to have his stand-up back. But I do think he's funny. And whenever I see him, I think he's good. Actually, he's a decent actor, too. I liked him in A Star is Born. Uh, but I think Sticks and Stones was all right. I wasn't crazy about it. My brother liked it a lot, too. But I, I thought it was all right. I mean, uh, I did like the fact he was tackling present-day issues. And I think the funniest part of it was the whole reaction to the Jesse Smollett case, which I thought was very funny. But I thought the LGBT jokes, rather than being funny, were just kind of mean-spirited. And they kind of tread the same path he did before. I mean, he, he got in some trouble with the previous Netflix stamp that was released uh, for his comments about transsexuals. Um, stuff on abortion was a little bit cutting edge. And, and the Michael Jackson material, I mean, I just found filthy. I didn't find it funny. I was just like, he's talking about the documentary, which if you've seen it, is revolting. And then Chappelle's talking about it. I was like, listen, I, I was already sickened by actually watching the documentary. I don't need him now talking about it as well. So I wasn't crazy about it. I, I'd give Sticks and Stones a couple of Maple Leafs. Unless you're a big Dave Chappelle fan, uh, I don't think it's one of the best stand-ups I've seen in a while. The movie that I want to talk about, though, is Britney Runs a Marathon. That movie came out... And limited release in August 23rd, and it's now opening wide. And um, I hope it's a success. I hope that people see it because it's been a tough summer for indie movie releases. Uh, In the case of Britney Runs a Marathon, this is a crowd pleaser which was released at Sundance and was snatched up for $14 million, which I think is going to be a tough amount of money to recoup with the way the box office is these days. But the story is quite straightforward. Uh, It's an inspirational comedy about a 20-something woman who turns her life around when she decides to give up a hard partying lifestyle and take up running. New York City empowerment fable. It's based on the experiences of a party-hardy friend of writer-director Paul Downs Colazo. And the actual rare character pops up under the health, uh, under the end credits, I should say. Uh, Brittany is held really in check by Jillian Bell. She's a comic actress best known for the Comedy Central series Workaholics and for stealing a good portion of 22 Jump Street from Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. Ty Burr, who's one of my favorite film critics, we've had him on Cinephile in the past. He's a film critic for the Boston Globe. He writes in his review, Bell's character here is best positioned as a toned-down indie movie version of an Amy Schumer heroine, a generous body coupled with ungenerous self-esteem that is dead into her life in lousy choices and lousier men. It doesn't help that Britney's nearing 30 and her roommate Gretchen, Alice Lee, doing what she can with a shallow role, is a rail-thin social media influencer whose Instagram feed would make Gwyneth Paltrow turn green. A New York City gym membership proving too much for her budget, Brittany sets a very tentative foot on the sidewalk outside her apartment door. Just one block, she mutters, cue the vertigo camera effects. How good is Ty Burr? That guy loves, loves vertigo more than I do. He and I are the biggest vertigo fans. He includes vertigo in a review of Brittany Runs a Marathon. Check out Ty's full review. As far as my review of the movie, listen, I thought it was very good. I thought it was funny. Uh, Jillian Bell, I thought was very good in the role. I mean, listen, I think there's so many women, so many men out there who struggle with weight and know how frustrating it is the way that people judge them. And, you know, the scene where she's going to visit the doctor and she's using sarcasm to try to shield the fact that this doctor said, listen, you're not living a healthy lifestyle. You're, you know, you're five, seven or whatever it is. You weigh 187 pounds and you got to lose some weight here because, it, you know, you're liver's high and blood pressure, et cetera. And anybody who knows who's tried to lose weight, every single person listening to this podcast has tried to lose weight. It's the first step that's the hardest. And so it's uh, commendable that Brittany at least laces on the shoes and goes from there. And like I said, the story may seem predictable, but what is unpredictable is the cast. She's got the gay best friend. She's got an Asian best friend who ends up being the shrew, who is being a real pain in her thorn. She's got a divorcee friend. She ends up falling in love with an Indian guy. That storyline kind of comes out of nowhere. I was like, oh, okay. I, I didn't think it was going in that direction, but I'm happy to see it do that. So good to see a brown man getting in the film. And it's not uh, Aziz Ansari, because uh, I thought his performance was really good. He's, um, 
It's actor I've never heard of before. I'm going to find his name in a second as I keep talking. But in the meantime, Brittany's sister is played by Kate Arrington. The brother-in-law is Lil Ray Howery. And then Jern is the sarcastic slacker who is house-sitting along with Brittany. And he's the Indian guy. Utkarsh Ambudkar is his name. And he's really funny. And they've got some real chemistry together. And, of course, there's some detours along the way. I mean, the whole story tells you Brittany runs a marathon. But what's this all about? It's about self-discovery. It's about overcoming self-loathing. It's about being happy with who you are. And I think it's important with the movie that you don't necessarily want to say, oh, if you're fat, you're unhappy. If you lose weight, you're all good. It's like, no, it's all about living a healthier lifestyle. But there's a really good scene with a supporting character who's overweight and I really liked um, her contribution to the film because I think it's important to say that this isn't a movie saying, hey, fat people lose weight. It's like, no, no, just, just be happy with yourself and try to live as healthy as you can and just make steps to, to do whatever you need to. But just because you lose the weight doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're happy with your life. And there's this one really cutting scene with uh, Lee and Jillian uh, Bell in which she's kind of telling her, listen, you know, fat girls, you know, don't, wait, don't throw away your fat clothes, okay? You're going to get fat again. And all of a sudden, all those same images and insecurities are all going to stay with you. So... I think it's definitely a timely film. I'm sure a lot of people can appreciate what um, Calazo is going for here. And like I said, for Jillian Bell, who's a supporting actress getting a lead role, it's nice to see her getting some love here. I give the film three Maple Leafs. Uh, there is a detour in the third act that I didn't think was necessary, but I guess that's kind of the storyline. You're kind of looking for some surprises along the way. But Brittany runs a marathon. I hope that people will check it out. It's a crowd pleaser, and I'm giving it three Maple Leafs, and hopefully people see it wherever their indie theaters can be found. Joe, have you heard much about Brittany Runs a Marathon? Do you have thoughts on Tootsie, Dave Chappelle, whatever you like? The floor is yours. Really, really excited to see Brittany Runs a Marathon. I've always liked Julian Bell. She, I think, has always been a scene stealer in a lot of projects she's done. She's in a later season of Eastbound and Down 2 where she's really funny. And so I'm really excited that she's finally stepping out and taking a lead role in a movie. So it seems very funny. Brittany runs a marathon. Yeah, definitely check out the film right now. And uh, we'll talk to our man Carlton. Maybe we can get Calazo or Jillian Bell or somebody from the film here to talk about the movie. Because like I said, it's timely. And I think people can appreciate whether you're running a 5K or the New York City Marathon. It is something certainly to be appreciated and something that is very, very difficult to do. All right, now time for some entertainment news. Billy Crystal. He's ready to work with Tiffany Haddish. That's right. Astute Films announcing Golden Globe-nominated comedy legend will team up with a girls' trip breakout starring comedian for a new feature titled Here Today. Crystal co-wrote the screenplay for the film with fellow Saturday Night Live alum Alan Zwiebel, who I love because he used to work on It's Gary Shandling's show. And this is based on the latter's 2011 short story, The Prize, with Haddish in mind for a lead role. This is Crystal's eighth time directing his third on a feature film. He previously helmed the movies like Mr. Saturday Night, which is a real labor of love for Crystal, and the romantic comedy Forget Paris. As an actor, he recently appeared in the Tribeca Film Festival standout Standing Up, Falling Down, while Haddish starred in last month's ensemble dramedy The Kitchen. A release date for here today yet to be announced. Production is slated to begin this October in New York City. I've always liked Billy Crystal a lot. Joe, happy to see him working. And with Tiffany Haddish, that seems to be a rather interesting pairing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. But my hope is that after this movie, maybe they host the Oscars together. I would really, really uh, co-sign on that. Dude, that's a great call. You know, for all of us hosts out there, you know, you can't just keep canceling hosts. I heard Rich Eisen talking about this in the SI Media podcast. Hosts are important, damn it. We can't do this. this uh, you know, the Emmys got rid of the host. The Oscars got rid of the host. Come on, hosts are invaluable. Also, shortly after Sony opened Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and theaters nationwide this summer, rumors circulated the writer-director was thinking about putting back in the footage he removed from the film's theatrical cut and releasing an extended version of Hollywood as a Netflix miniseries. Tarantino did just that with The Hateful Eight earlier this year. It turns out the rumor is true, at least according to Brad Pitt. 
The actor confirming Tarantino had discussed the idea, Pitt says, it's a pretty arousing idea. As IndieWire previously reported, Tarantino's first assembly cut of Hollywood ran four hours and 20 minutes. The film's theatrical cut came in at just over two hours and 40 minutes. Pitt told the New York Times he would be excited by the idea and have extended once upon a time in Hollywood release. While Pitt did not confirm if the miniseries would be for Netflix, should Tarantino go through with the idea? It appears likely given Tarantino's release of Hateful Eight. Pitt said it's almost the best of both worlds. You have the cinema experience that exists, but you can actually put more content in the series format. So look forward to that. Also, Pierce Brosnan endorsing a female Bond. He saved the world four times at James Bond, and now he said about a female Bond, yes, I think we've watched the guys do it for the last 40 years. Get out of the way, guys. Put a woman up there. I think it would be exhilarating. It would be exciting. However, he expresses doubt that the change will play out on screen under the current producers. I don't think that's going to happen with the Broccoli's. I don't think that's going to happen under their watch. But he said Bond will have to change the times as well because of the whole you know, seductive atmosphere around him. Without question, yes, the Me Too movement has been relevant and significant and well-needed in our society, so they'll have to address that. Bond can't just go around there gallivanting with all these women. And lastly, Eddie Murphy going on a stand-up tour in 2020. Oh, yeah. Next year in 2020, I'm going to go on the road and do some stand-up. He said that in a recent episode of the Netflix podcast, Present Company with Krista Smith. He did not reveal further details, but he's hosting SNL December 21st. First time he's hosted in 35 years. He's also starring in the upcoming Netflix biopic, Dolomite is My Name, as a comedian and self-styled godfather of rap. Rudy Ray Moore, who became a sensation thanks to his 1970s black exploitation character, Dolomite. Film follows Moore's mission to make Dolomite a movie unlike anything that came before. If that weren't enough, Murphy is reuniting with his Dolomite is my name director, Craig Brewer, for coming to America, which is slated for release in December 2020. So new movie coming out this year. It's going to be on SNL December 21st. He's doing stand-up next year and coming to America too next year. By the way, Murphy was rumored to have been in negotiations with Netflix for upward of $70 million to do a series of stand-up specials. The streamer previously made similarly hefty deals with comedians, including Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock for their specials. And Murphy's previous stand-up projects are still among the highest-grossing comedy films of all time. Joe, this is like J.D. Salinger deciding to write another book all of a sudden. It's like, all right, Eddie Murphy finally going to do stand-up. It's been 35 years, for God's sake, since we've seen him out on stage. I can't wait for this. Oh, me too. I can't. I mean, some of his stand-up from the 80s is still prolific. And I can't, I, I'm just wondering if, if he's going to bring the red jumpsuit back. We'll find <laughs> out. We'll find out. Uh, but hopefully at some point, I'm sure there will be many references to Delirious and Rob, but you're right. The red jumpsuit comes back. Uh, that would definitely be awesome to see. All right. I am so pumped to talk to our special guest. It's one of the best books I read all year. And we're going to talk to the author right now. A real pleasure to bring in Brian Raftery. He is the author of my favorite book of the year. It's called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. To give some perspective here, I was born in 78. So the, my favorite movies of my lifetime were those movies of the 90s. I was ages 12 to 22. So this takes me back to when I was 21 years old, you know, just finishing up college. And it's that time where, you know, it, it really is your formative years in many ways. It's shaping all your experiences. And I always felt like those movies were really special. And now that I've read Brian's book, I have confirmation that that movie year was indeed a remarkable year. Brian, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I want to start with Magnolia, which is one of my favorite movies. And I loved uh, what you wrote in uh, the book about it. Um, the chapter title is called The Goddamn Regret, which is, of course, Jason Robart's <laughs> part of that great monologue he's given. Um, 
P.T. Anderson is my favorite filmmaker. I think he's uber talented. And I loved reading the backstory you told about where he was in his life with this book because Boogie Nights is this enormous success. And you've got Francis Ford Coppola going up to him in a restaurant telling him, hey, listen, whatever you want to do next, make sure you swing for the fences, okay? You're never going to get this chance again. So whatever you want to do, this is it. After this, things are going to change again. Um, and, you know, he's friends with Tom Cruise now, and, and Cruise had invited him to see Eyes Wide Shut. And, like, it sounds incredible, the, the life that this guy was on at the time. P.T. Anderson's a relatively young man, yet he's made this huge success. Although Boogie Nights wasn't exactly winning Oscars, but within the movie circles, it's made a real hit. And then talk about the way that P.T. Anderson, you know, kind of put the story together. And the fact that he wrote about Tom Cruise's backstory without even realizing what Tom was going through with his own father. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big swing movie in a, in a lot of ways, and he was certainly in this very rare position that I don't know if any young filmmaker would get now, where, you know, uh, he'd made one movie, Hard Eight, which was kind of barely released. He made Boogie Nights, which was a movie everyone, you know, we all loved and saw but and got some Oscar nominations, but was certainly not a smash hit. But that movie was so exciting that, you know, he gets people like Warren Beatty taking him out to dinner and and you know that's where Francis Ford Coppola kind of approaches him and tells him, you know, this is this is your big shot, kid. And he he took it. I mean, he was this was his first really big budget film, and he got uh, Tom Cruise, who was the biggest star in the world at that point. He got a you know a budget of around forty forty five million dollars. He got and he got Final Cut, which is you know those are just three huge gets for someone that was his age. And he decides to tell the story of all these interlocking lives in Los Angeles. Um, and there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a through line of cancer and of family problems, but he writes this pretty remarkable character for Tom Cruise, who's this um, very skeevy seeming um, pickup artist guru, who is sort of pulled out of his world to go uh, visit with his father on his, on his father's deathbed, and he is he's very you know he's been estranged from his father for years. And Paul Thomas Anderson kind of wrote this you know with Cruise in mind, but I don't think he apparently he didn't even realize at that point that. You know, Cruz had had his own problems with his own father, and then you know Tom Cruise had kind of severed relations with his father and had only seen him in his, when his father had cancer toward the end. So it's a pretty remarkable scene for those who've made it through Magnolia, which I know is a long movie and a, and a tough one for some people. I mean, watching Cruise on screen kind of reconcile with his character's father is a remarkably moving moment, and I think one of the reasons is because it's so kind of grounded in Cruise's own life in a way. Yeah, I don't really care for Cruz like on a personal level. Like I don't, I don't like Scientology and all the stuff he stands up for. But I admit when I remove that as a as a film critic and a film fan, I said, you know, I, like you said, that that scene in particular was remarkable. The way that he just shows all that vulnerability stripped away and all that emotion comes cascading over him. The entire cast is unreal. I mean, you got Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I adore, playing a very kind, empathetic uh, aide to Jason Robards' Dying Man. You've got, uh, obviously, Philip Baker Hall is so good as a talk show host. You've got John C. Riley. You've got Laura Waters. you got uh, Julianne Moore. Like, at that point, you felt like, all right, there's this real stock company of P.T. Anderson people. You know, Luis Guzman, they're in Boogie Nights. Now they're going to work with this guy the rest of his life. Um, but he just keeps taking chances. You mentioned William H. Macy's character. Here's what I'll read from your book specifically. And that's the scene where everyone sings a line from Amy, Land's, Amy Mann's Wise Up. Like the plastic bag scene in American Beauty, which, by the way, I hated, Brian. Thank God you mentioned that scene, because that, that's the, the, one of the worst scenes of any movie in 1999. Like, I like American Beauty. I think it's a really good movie. 
I don't think it should have won Best Picture because of all these other movies that came out, but God, I hated that sequence. Anyways, like the plastic bag scene <laughs> in American Beauty, the wise-up sequence would split critics and moviegoers. Some saw it as an indulgence, others as a moment of uneasy harmony among discombobulated souls, but the sing-along was nowhere near as divisive as what followed, and that was, of course, the, the massive army of frogs tumbling from the sky. I remember talking to an oncologist on the phone who was essentially telling me there was no way that my dad was going to make it, Anderson said, and one of the first things that popped into my mind was you're telling me frogs are falling from the sky. Hearing that your dad is going to die is as bizarre as hearing frogs are falling from the sky. And one of my favorite film critics, Owen Gleiberman from EW, who's now at Variety, said he found that sequence, the director's grandiosity taking over, elbowing everything else aside. I, I think it's a great sequence because the fact it's got so much chutzpah to it. But I could imagine, as you said, re-watching it now or talking to people about it, some just go, hey, what the hell was with the frogs? I have no idea what the hell was going on. Yeah, I never, I, I didn't mind at the time, and I, I actually, I love the sing-along scene. Um, and, you know, when I watch that movie now, parts of it, it does feel a little long. And I think P.T. Anderson himself has said that he would cut maybe 20, 25 minutes out of it, which, which maybe wouldn't be the worst idea. But, you know, in that case, the grandiosity is, is what makes Magnolia so fascinating. I mean, if you think about it, in 2019, if a, if a studio says, hey, young filmmaker, do you want to make your own movie, that filmmaker's not going to say, yeah, could I have a, a huge movie star and a lot of money and uh, make a movie about death and, and frogs falling from the sky that are never going to be explained? I mean, those kind of films and those kind of um, stories just don't get told nowadays. So I think 20 years after Magnolia came out, it seems all the more remarkable. Even if, even if it doesn't quite gel in some ways, um, it's still a pretty amazing movie to watch. And it's very hypnotic. If it comes on, you kind of can't stop watching it. That's a great description of it. By the way, Philip Baker Hall said, I'll vouch for the frogs. I don't want to give it away, but I want people to read the book. So read the book, and he tells a story specifically of when um, he was in <laughs> Germany, post-war Germany. He's got his own frog story, which is amazing when you actually read that story. And I also love the first 10 minutes of the movie. To your point about the hypnotic pull of it, like that that whole narration there, Ricky Jay, this is not just one of those things. This is not by chance. And then, boom, you go to that song, you know, One is the Loneliest Number by Amy Mann. Yeah. I am completely with you. That, that movie hooks you right out of the gate. That's the first 10 minutes. It's really, really startling. Uh, which brings me to being John Malkovich. God, I love that movie. And um, I love that you mentioned of all the movies that you went through that year. And, and for perspective, folks, if you want to go look them up, seriously, The Matrix, The Sixth Sense, um, Election, um, Rushmore, Magnolia. I mean, there, there's so many great films that came out that year. But as you mentioned, being John Malkovich was the best reviewed film of that year. And that's one that really critics jumped on. And uh, just give us the backstory for, for Charlie Kaufman writing this idea and Spike Jones. And to me, what's always marvelous from reading your book is the fact that it, the title was Being John Malkovich. This was not, hey, let's just find some avant-garde actor. No, no. They specifically wanted Malkovich. It had to be Malkovich because as you perfectly wrote, he's famous enough that you'd know him, but he's not that famous. It's like, okay, that's the guy from In the Line of Fire or Dangerous Liaisons, but they literally wrote a title with him in it, and the fact they actually got him to do it, and the film was as great as it was, is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah, I mean, it, it had to be Malkovich. I mean, I, and I think at a certain point, they were shopping around the studios, and there was one sort of famous story where uh, an executive at New Line, which was the studio that made Magnolia, was basically like, hey, why can't this be called Being Tom Cruise? Um, <laughs> which is kind of shows that this, is a, this was a very tough movie to sell, but if you look at those two filmmakers, you know, Charlie Kaufman, who wrote the screenplay, and Spike Jones who directed it, um, and this was Spike Jones' first movie, um, they're, they're kind of the perfect people to make that movie, and they're the only ones who really could have. They were both complete, in a way, sort of complete outsiders. I mean, Charlie Kaufman had, had written Being John Malkovich, the screenplay, starting in the mid-90s when he was a very frustrated um, uh, sitcom writer and TV writer who could not hold, he could not hide his disdain for the sitcom medium very well. And, you know, Spike Jones had spent the 90s making these kind of remarkable 
music videos. I mean, he was sort of the only name brand. I mean, he and Hype Williams were two of the only really sort of name brand music video directors where if MTV said, here's the new Spike Jones video, I mean, in college, we would tape those on VHS and try to collect them all because they were, you know, like the, the sweater song by Weezer. Uh, they were just, and Buddy Holly, they were so inventive. So you have these two guys who are completely not part of the studio system at all. Um, and they sort of, sort of staked their claim and said, no, this is the movie we want to make. And we want to make it specifically with John Malkovich. Cause I don't think that movie works as, um, as being Tom Cruise. It has to be this actor who you kind of think you know, but who you can possibly, who you can also buy just in this weird fantasy version where people are taking a portal into the back of his head and inhabiting his body for brief moments of time. And, you know, that was, as you said, it was the best review movie that year. It, it, that and Election, I think. I mean, I think Election topped the premier critics poll, and I think um, being John Malkovich topped the Village Voice critics poll. So those are, those are the two, sort of the two most beloved movies of that year. But I mean, Malkovich was just that kind of movie that you, you sort of had to see it as soon as it opened because people were talking about it, and it made no sense if someone described that film to you. You absolutely had to sort of see it for yourself. Uh, great mention here. You put in your book, page 242, about Cusack, who was upset after Con Air said, I called my agent and told me he had to get me something to read that wasn't crap. In a whispered voice, Cusack's rep told him, you've got to read Being John Malkovich. He sounded like it was some kind of a drug deal, the actor recalled. So I read it and thought, the only way this will ever get made is if some kid maxes out his dad's credit card and shoots it out of a van. Cusack also <laughs> told his agency that if by chance the movie did get made and he wasn't in it, he would hire new representatives. How good is that? It's great, and you know he—he's right though. You know, five years earlier, in 90, if you'd made that in the early '90s or mid '90s, you probably would have had to shoot it with a van and a maxed-out credit card. But one of the good things that's so fascinating about '99 is that you had all these years of buildup in the independent scene, where you had all these new filmmakers breaking out. You know, whether it was like Allison Anders or um, you know Tarantino had broken out by then, or Kevin Smith. So the the big studios were willing to look at a script like Being John Malkovich, and instead of just throwing it in the trash, they were like, "Wait a minute." This might be what people want nowadays. We can actually make big. We can make movies like this with bigger budgets and well-known stars. And you didn't have to shoot them out of the back of a van. You could really. I mean, that was being John Malkovich was a was a for the most part a studio movie. It was a small studio subset, but you know that a lot of money went into that. It was it was a very big deal when it came out. Speaking of a very big deal, uh, just ask sixty minutes what they thought of the Insider I and mean, the fact that Michael Mann was willing to take on. Some big-time names, including Mike Wallace. Um, that movie's remarkable. I remember watching it and thinking, oh, my God, it's so dense. It is so well-researched, and it is so taut, and it's so um, so much tension. Like, it's just perfect the way Michael Mann captures it. And, of course, those performances by Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. And I love that scene, you know, where Pacino says, we're running out of heroes, man. Like, he's just he's oh, clinging yeah. to the fact that it's such a good scene, the way those two guys play it. Tell me a little bit about The Insider. Because, again, what I found amazing at reading your book was the fact that, you know how expensive that movie was? And they knew this is not a commercial movie. This is not going to make $100 million. Yet there was a studio willing to make pay $50 million and say, you know what? This is an important movie to make, and we'll do it for the critics, and we'll do it for hopefully some Oscars. But if not, what the hell, Michael, man? We trust you. Go ahead and make the movie you want to make. That's amazing. Yeah, that studio was Disney. It was, <laughs> which is crazy. It's, you know, of all the studios that you look back now of the kind of of what Disney put out twenty years ago. I mean, they they did the Insider and they did the David Lynch movie, The Straight Story, which I don't think those movies would even be allowed to. I don't think you could drive those scripts on the Disney lot at this point without being thrown out. But yeah, I mean, it it was it was a movie that had no franchise possibilities, had no sequel possibilities, and it was going to be an R-rated movie about a guy who tries to take down the tobacco industry and. The you know the 
frustrated 60 Minutes uh, producer who helps them. And a lot of that movie is just two guys talking. I mean, it's a lot of scenes of just Russell Crowe and Al Pacino, these two kind of very different men circling each other. And it's it's really, really tense. It's it's a very interesting kind of cat and mouse thriller where, where, where frankly, very little really truly happens. I mean, there's definitely a lot of plot to it. But a lot of the best scenes in that movie, I mean, I think the best scene in that movie is the suspense of Al Pacino waiting to get a fax from someone, <laughs> you know, just sort of what we you know, what will the, what will the source tell him? I mean, that it's a remarkably well-made movie. And the fact that it, people sometimes forget that the insider came out in 99 when they're listing all these movies, I think is a testament to just how many remarkable films came out that year. You kind of, you can't really contain that list to a top 10. And uh, I, I'm going to accuse you, Brian, of cheating on one of these because Rushmore, I always think of 98 and I think it came out in December of 98, and you're including it in 99 because I guess that was more the wide release. Is that your thinking on Rushmore? Yeah, Rushmore had a, had a uh, award season run in a couple of coasts, uh, a couple of coasts, sorry, I think on the coast and in a couple of cities in late 98, but Touchstone and released it in February of 99, and that's when the cast actually did press for it and everything. So it's, it's a little bit of a cheat. I mean, uh, you know, The Virgin Suicides also premiered a can in 99, but didn't come out until 2000, but... You know, they all sort of they all sort of feel of the same year. Even <laughs> if you're not cheating the calendar, I was going to say, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide because I love that movie so much. You know, it's my favorite coming <laughs> of age movie, and um, I had no idea. I had no idea the friction between Murray and Jason Schwartzman. If you can indulge our audience, what you uh, disclose in the book? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they got along at first. I think they had, um, you know, apparently they and they both. What's so funny is they both talked about this. Schwartzman and Murray both talked about this at length when the movie came out. It was actually part of the press tour was them sort of talking about this remarkably uncomfortable sort of first real um, re- rehearsal they'd had with Wes Anderson in a hotel in Texas. And uh, they did not get along. And, and, you know, it's also those, I have a feeling that, you know, slightly cranky Bill Murray at that point in his life meeting with slightly, you know, um, probably a little too uh, enthusiastic and sarcastic teenage Jason Schwartzman. It was probably not an easy, uh, probably not an easy mix at first, but, you know, they, they kind of quickly got over that, but I, I also think it's kind of remarkable that there's also a little bit of tension in the movie between them. I mean, it's a very warm movie, ultimately, but um, they have to be adversaries, and there's something very fun about the idea of this young this young kind of bratty kid trying to take down this, this older guy he sees as kind of, you know, as, as a weird sort of father figure, when there was something probably similar to that happening in real life on set. But you know those two are um, those two are really really good on screen together, and I think you know that was probably for Wes Anderson, who's directed a lot of difficult actors since then. I, I have a feeling that was probably the movie that really helped him understand actors, because if you can make those two performances work so well out of those two very different performers, you can you really know how to talk to actors. Yeah, page one hundred eight of your book. You talked about the night before filming. They spent that uncomfortable hour rehearsing. When the hour was up, Murray said, "I went and got really drunk in a Texas hotel bar. It was not a good week for me." <laughs> not not long after the hotel room fiasco, Anderson remembered Bill took us off to a restaurant where we ate chicken fried steak. After that, everything was fine. So that, of course, is the uh, <laughs> the recipe for all such things. Uh, the Sixth Sense is an incredible movie because it's like, how in the world did this thing work? How did and this is the best point your book makes, Brian, is that in today's age, that secret would not have been held. People would have spoiled it on Twitter and on Instagram and said, yeah, he's actually dead. He sees dead people, blah, blah, blah. But for some reason, I don't know why this is, but people saw the I didn't see it like initially in, in August. I remember when it came out. I didn't see it initially. And I remember mm. nobody spoiled it for me. Like I saw it on DVD a few months later. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. What I want you to retell, if you remember it, is the story about uh, 
Bruce and M. Night Shyamalan, a critical sequence. Uh, I'll jog your memory. Page 171 here. Uh, when Shyamalan asked the actor to adjust one of his line readings, he demurred. I think we got it, Willis told him. Shyamalan steeled himself. I'm like, this is it. This is the moment. I lean in and whispered, here's what I was thinking, blah, blah, blah. He looks at me, and before he has a chance to tell me what I thought, I go, roll sound. Here we go. And after the scene was completed, Shyamalan was walking to his car when he got word that Willis wanted to meet him. What happened then? Yeah, I mean, and for people who who are sort of forget, Bruce Willis in the late 90s was not in a great place career-wise for a while and was kind of earning a reputation as being very, <laughs> very cranky on set. Um, and, you know, Shyamalan had only done um, one very small movie that had, or sorry, a, a pair of very small movies that had barely been seen. He hadn't, I mean, the biggest actor he'd worked with at that point was Rosie O'Donnell. So he, you know, to get someone like Willis, who is not only a kind of a, force of nature on on camera but also behind the scenes so he gets called back to this trail you know he gets called back to willis's trailer and i you know and Shyamalan, as he told me was was terrified that he you know that he had blown it basically and it turns out that willis who i don't think had been corrected by directors that much at that point was actually complimentary and said this actually feels really good this feels like i'm this, i haven't felt this way since pulp fiction which i think kind of um cemented their relationship and you know um I think Shyamalan is, is also someone who I think is underrated as an actor's director. If you watch rewatch The Sixth Sense, uh, Willis is really good in. I, I actually would say it's probably the best thing he's done besides Pulp Fiction, maybe. Um, and I think he and Shyamalan, for whatever reason, in the movies they did subsequently, they they have a very good rapport. And uh, but I can't imagine being this young, basically first-time studio filmmaker who's getting called <laughs> called to the principal's office, and the principal is Bruce Willis. That would be absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Fight Club is in way I remember my roommate John Nadlin God Jay Nadlin he loved Fight Club he kept telling me how great that movie was and um, I'm, I must admit I, I liked it at the time I wasn't crazy about it I feel like I, I definitely have to watch it again now after reading what you wrote about it because it felt like it was ahead of its time and it still gets referenced all the time by people um, I love the fact that at one point Fincher gave Edward Norton some direction he said a little less Jerry a little more Dean knew exactly what you meant there of course Martin <laughs> Lewis reference and here's the best part of the book one of the funniest parts of your entire book Page 232. The world premiere of Fight Club was held in early September at Italy's prestigious Venice Film Festival. It was the first indicator that not everyone found Mr. Fincher's opus especially funny. It gets to one of Helena's scandalous lines. I haven't been f like that since grade school. And literally the guy running the festival got up and left, recalled Pitt. Edward and I were still the only ones laughing. You could hear two idiots up in the balcony crackling through the whole thing. Ads Norton, it got booed. It wasn't playing well at all. Brad turns and looks at me and says, that's the best movie I'm ever going to be in. He was so happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, that movie was controversial from pretty much the moment they decided to make it. But yeah, I mean, it's important to remember with Fight Club, which is, as you mentioned, some people don't really love it. It's a very controversial movie. It has a, it has a cult following. It also has a following of people who think that cult following is a bad sign for uh, society. But, you know, it's, it was definitely a movie that came out at a very troubled time. It was supposed to come out uh, it was supposed to come out the same weekend that summer of Eyes Wide Shut, but after the Columbine shooting in, in April 99, uh, Fox, the studio, decided to, to put some distance between it because it's a very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's considered by many a kind of dangerous movie. It's, it's, it's asking a lot of big questions about consumerism and corporate world life and all sorts of things that are, and, and some of the answers that it has are, are fairly destructive. But I always found it I, I have to say, I found that movie pretty funny when I first saw it, except for the last 20 minutes. I remember being very floored by it. Um, but I think what's so funny now is that I don't know if um, I don't know if some of the ideas in Fight Club are quite as controversial anymore. I mean, the movie ends with you know credit card company buildings 
being destroyed so that everyone's credit will will go back to zero. And that's that's actually you know a variation of that's kind of a talking point in the presidential campaign in America this year. So uh, I think some of the radical ideas of Fight Club would now seem um, a little bit more, I don't want to say appropriate, but they certainly seem a little more relevant and a little more timely. To that point, um, when you mentioned that the guys are brainstorming, and he said, and I love Mammoth, they said that they had a long spill they dubbed a Mammoth rant, as if to aspire to the greatness of David Mammoth. It was stuff like you're not the contents of your wallet. Some of their nurse session conversations were incorporating a long anti-pep talk Tyler gives the narrator early on. F off with your SOPA units and green stripe patterns. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. It definitely has the DNA of Mammoth, doesn't it? Oh, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of, and, and it's, it's, it's also just so wonderful that they can just get all those mammoth rants in the movie. I mean, there was, I think, you know, the, the, the dialogue in that film is really remarkable. It, it, it's based some of it on Chuck Palahniuk's book, but, you know, um, Jim Oles did a fantastic job adapting it, and Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, did some work on it, too. And it's a pretty, um, it's a very funny, very smart screenplay. And, you know, the movie they were kind of thinking of was The Graduate, which is another very, it's a very different, but also another kind of very radical movie about um, a young man trying to figure out his direction in life. And like The Graduate, Fight Club has a lot of really good one-liners. It's a very, very, um, for a movie that a lot of people think is very dark and nihilist, it's got a lot of good lines. Yeah, I've got to see it again, because uh, especially reading your book again, I said, okay, maybe I missed the boat on how great this was. Like, I liked it, but I, I'm with you. I think it's a lot probably funnier than I realized. Last one for you, and I'm embarrassed. I've never seen Three Kings, and I've got to see it if you're reading your book, and especially this story about George Clooney and David O. Russell, who, of course, his reputation was being very, very difficult. But in March of 1998, filming almost completed, D. Bonaventura got a call from a producer in the Arizona city of Three Kings. He goes, we've got a problem. George is trying to pound David, and David is choking George. I'm like, are you effing kidding me? The executive was already nervous about the movie, which had gone from 68 shooting days to 78. It was one of the few times I was told, this is on you if it doesn't work. Literally, Clooney and Russell are coming to blows on the set. How crazy is this? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, and I urge you to see Three Kings and your listeners. It's pretty wonderful um it's it's an absolutely uh a dark funny incredibly um propulsive action it's like an action movie comedy thriller political drama war film which uh, they don't really make anymore if they were made at all but it was also a very tough shoot david o russell you know in the late 90s especially in 99 uh the studios were giving a lot of filmmakers from the indie world whether it's you know david o russell or paul thomas anderson um they were giving them access to these really big budgets and these big stars and these were big uh, steps up for a lot of these filmmakers. And I think David O. Russell and George Clooney, um, who was at the time absolutely, you know, a huge movie star and a, t and a TV star, I don't think their working styles uh, went together pretty well. So, and it was a very intense shoot. There was a lot of outdoor in the heat in, the, in Arizona, and it was just a very tense set the whole time. And it finally kind of came to blows. And, you know, it's, 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 in a way, it's almost unfortunate that it happened because when Three Kings came out, the stories of the fights between Clooney and, and David O. Russell really kind of overshadowed just how fantastic the movie was. Um, but I think it's also sometimes to make a movie that has that kind of tension, you sometimes the onset tension actually ha helps in a way. Um, and I don't think people, I'm not saying people should get into fist fights when they're making movies, but I do think that you can see a lot of the tensions behind the scenes play out in that movie in a really remarkable way. I, I, I think it's a, I think if you see it, you'll love it. It's a visceral movie. It's, it's a lot along the lines of MASH. It just, it's a very interesting movie that no studio today would make in any way whatsoever. 
Yeah, this, this sequence you right here is really fascinating. The actor was commuting back and forth for days at a time, sometimes leaving the ER set at 4.30 a.m., flying straight to Arizona for Three Kings, only to find that Russell had rewritten the day's script. The constant dialogue adjustments were one of many sources of tension between Clooney and the director. He was so specific about everything down to the movement of a finger, said Clooney. David's feelings was, what am I supposed to do? Shoot it the way I don't like it written? And my feeling was, what am I supposed to do? I don't know my lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they got together very well. I think they have since the David and Russell told me when I interviewed with the book that they have since made up. But I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't expect the Three Kings too for a, for a lot of reasons. No, at last point here, and this is a great point you made, Brian, because as a movie lover through and through, a guy who has a podcast called Cinephile, everybody tells me, well, movies aren't good anymore, buddy. Everything good is on TV now, and I understand this is a golden age of television with streaming. The quality has never been better, et cetera. But I love the way you ended your book because, you know, you point out the fact that there's been this feeling before that people say, hey, man, movies, the magic's gone. They're not as good as they used to be. And instead, you get this incredible year like 99, and maybe, just maybe, uh, we can get uh, a resurgence when it comes to films um, just like we did back 20 years ago. I think so, and I really hope so. I mean, I, I certainly think when I look at those movies from 99, it's a long list of, of really culturally important, really dazzling, really sort of uh, seminal movies that have hung around for 20 years. I don't know if you ever have a year that feels quietly, quite as, uh, as densely populated as that one. But look, I mean, people, people have been predicting the end of movies since TV came around. They were predicting it when VHS came around. It's just... This is a very different scenario now where we have franchises and streaming. So it does feel a little more perilous maybe they did in the past. But, you know, um, when I was working on the book, you know, Get Out came out and Lady Bird and Phantom Thread and Call Me By Your Name. And a lot of, there's a lot of good movies this year, too. And I just feel like maybe we don't maybe we only get like 10 or 12 really amazing kind of really smart films a year. But I'll, I'll take 12. I mean, I, I'm not worried about movies going anywhere. I worry about the audience is kind of going somewhere. But um, I certainly do feel that, you know, we, we do need a studio. I think the big studios need to take a few more chances because, as, as everyone saw this summer, uh, just pumping out sequels is, is not going to work for a lot of these franchises. And I think, I think they're slowly starting to realize it, which is what happened in the late 90s. The studios saw that people weren't quite showing up for what they were doing. They're doing a lot of TV movie, adapt doing a lot of TV adaptations. They were doing a, a lot of sequels no one asked for. And then you get a year like... 99, you get a Fight Club or The Matrix or Boys Don't Cry because the studios decided to take some chances. Yeah, other great movies we didn't even touch on. The Limey, a great Soderbergh film. Um, oh, yeah. The, the Blair Witch Project, Eyes Wide Shut, which is divisive. Star Wars Episode One, which you wrote perfectly. It's, it's the most critically reviled successful movie ever. I mean, the thing made like a billion dollars. People crap <laughs> on it all the time because of Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Virgin Suicides as well. Even the teen stuff like American Pie. You know, Varsity Blues, Cruel Intentions, um, Following, Go, and one that I should have mentioned. We'll close with this, actually. Office Space. Could anybody have predicted oh, Office yeah. Space would be one of the great comedies of all time? Yeah, no one did at the time, because even some of the cast members went to go see it on opening weekend, and there was no one else in the theater. Actually, at least two, two cast members from Office Space went to two different theaters that weekend, and were pretty much the only ones there. It was, uh, you know, it was a huge bomb. It, just, it was just sort of dumped in February. But, you know, back then, a movie could get this afterlife partly because of cable reruns partly because of dvd and also partly because of the internet you know the internet has kept um office space alive for 20 years now and you know and, you know, and i don't think the matrix or fight club necessarily needed the internet to keep them going but those two movies are also just they're they're brought up every day i mean there's a new there's a new morpheus meme every day i think in the internet so i think the web has certainly really helped a lot of these movies have a much longer sort of cultural shelf life than they might have um, you know, if, had they come out 10, 20 years earlier. 
You can follow him on Twitter at Brian Raftery, B-R-I-A-N-R-A-F-T-R-Y. Once again, his fabulous book is called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Phenomenal work, Brian. Seriously, it's a great, great book. And thank you for reminding me of why I love that year so much and why I love my college years so much. Continued success. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. And see, definitely see Three Kings. You'll love it. All right. I'll add to the list. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Bye. Mount Rushmore. All right. Thanks again to Brian. God, he was fantastic talking about. And as I said, listen, right now you're listening going, how could you not talk about the Matrix? How could you not talk about election? Uh, trust me, those movies are definitely worthy of acclaim as well. I just talked about movies that were to my personal taste, which is why it should not be surprised for the Mount Rushmore of 99. I'm going to go with the following Magnolia being John Malkovich, Rushmore and Sixth Sense. Uh, I like Brian's point about Shyamalan being underrated working with actors, because if you look now, Haley Joel Osment, Tony Collette, Willis, all of them were fantastic in that movie, and he's pretty good not only with the Hitchcockian twists and uh, the look of the picture and the you know the feel of it, but also work with those actors as well. So those are my four. Joe, I'm more interested for your four. Which are the ones that really uh, intrigued you from that year? Oh, boy. I feel like there's no wrong answers this week. And I, I agree with you. Being John Malkovich has to be on that list. Uh, I also have Fight Club 2. I think that's such a cool movie. It still looks cool, holds up. I'm throwing on The Matrix. Uh, I rewatched that about three months ago. And the CGI technology that they use in that movie, revolutionary, really. And then I also have The Iron Giant, directed by Brad Bird, before Ratatouille, before The Incredibles. This is a really heartwarming story about a guy who finds a robot. So those are my four. <laughs> I like it, Joe. You're a young guy, no kids, but I like the fact you've got a child's heart here. You're a big Brad Bird guy. That That is, you know what? I'm going to see, I think Iron Giant is mentioned, but I think it's only mentioned in passing in the book. So good for you for giving it some acclaim. People need to see it more. Go rewatch it, people. Yeah, he, listen, Raftery gave more time to talking about She's All That, Cruel Intentions, 10 Things I Hate About You than Iron Giant. So... I like the fact you're willing to die on this. Oh, you know what? Hang on. It does get mentioned because it's in the chapter seven with Star Wars Episode One, Phantom Menace, and Galaxy Quest. He does actually have a few pages in Iron Giant. So you have been vindicated in your decision. Awesome. Great. Everyone buy the book then. The Bada Binge. And now it's time for the Bada Binge. Once again, if you're just listening to Cinefoff for the first time, we always go through the Sopranos episodes. Right now, we are up to Season 5, Episodes 4, 5, and 6. Uh, this, to me, is one of the strongest seasons of the Sopranos. We focus on Episode 4, All Happy Families. You got AJ here blaming Carmela for kicking Tony out, and one of my favorite actors shows up. That's right, Guidance Counselor Robert Wegler, played by the great David Strathairn. Uh, from the book by Matt Zoller-Seitz and Alan Sepinwall, The Soprano Sessions, Strathairn is one of the show's most recognizable guest stars with no real history in mob movies, having first one notice as part of the repertory company of indie director John Sayles, Eight Men Out, before taking memorable roles in more mainstream films like A League of Their Own, Sneakers, L.A. Confidential, and Good Night and Good Luck, which got him an Oscar nomination for playing Edward R. Murrow. So I love Strathairn. He shows up because he's the love interest now of Carmela, while he's also helping out A.J., 
And then you've got Feech gone. That's right. It's so good to have Robert Loja in the in the show, but then he's prematurely gone. And what triggers the decision to get rid of Feech is less the thefts than Tony recalling a moment earlier in the episode when he told a stupid joke at the executive game and everyone laughed like a hyena except for Feech. Once Tony could admit that, as Carmella warns, the adulation is undeserved, he could see that Feech's scowl, even in this context, suggests a genuine threat to his reign, and he has Christopher set Feech up with a parole violation. We get denied more loja. Uh, it's a nonviolent checkmate of him. You've also got Frankie Valley showing up. Little Carmine's advisor, Rusty Milio. Valley was the front man for the legendary and mob adored band, The Four Seasons, was a plot point in season four's Christopher. As Rusty, he is very much presented as the Dick Cheney to Little Carmine's malapropism spouting George W. Bush and Alive Carmine Sr., pushing the sun into a war neither seemed prepared for. Episode five is one of my favorites. It's called Irregular Around the Margins, and it's about a near affair between Tony and Adriana. With Chris out on a score, Tony and Aid having a couple of drinks, wanting to score a little Coke. Uh, after their crash in an SUV while looking to score cocaine, it doesn't matter they didn't have sex because the mob has its own version of the telephone game that expands on what happened until speculation finally acquires a narrative followed by humiliating made-up details. Adriana sustaining a severe blow to the head becomes her giving Tony a blowjob and on and on until Uncle Junior is marveling, apparently he came all over the sun visor. Uh, this goes back to the fact that Soprano is telling Melfi about you know, having sex with Adriana or starting a serious relationship with her would be a disaster for them both, ruining his relationship with his heir apparent, encouraging Carmela to get a more brutal divorce settlement. And yet, we know Tony. When he wants what he wants, he's going to go and get it and get it. And the reason why I love this episode so much is that not only do they have the strong element of comedy, but it's a real showcase for not only... Uh, Michael and Porley is Christopher, especially the scene where he's telling him, you know, listen, everyone's talking about it, everyone's thinking about it. It doesn't even matter if you fooled around with my girlfriend. Everyone thinks it happened, and now you're making me look like a loser and an embarrassment, and I'm humiliated. And eventually, it uh, culminates in Christopher grabbing a gun, and he goes in the bing. And it's got one of the funnier scenes where Sylvia's like, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Meantime, Christopher's waving a gun around, threatening to shoot Tony because he thinks he slept with his girlfriend. Um as the guys write, Irregular on the Margins is among The Sopranos' most purely farcical episodes. The episode applies a series core idea, recognizable family problems with mafia-level stakes as the world of gossip and innuendo letting the captains act like eighth graders passing notes. A whole episode where everyone is upset leaves greater room for comedy, including the scene where Carmela throws the pizza Tony brought as a pizza offering out of the floor, followed by Tony scooping it back up before he leaves with the tail between his legs, or after Tony B's quick thinking gets Christopher off the warpath, the most pressing issue suddenly being the fact that Chris threw food at Vito. Tony quotes, that's got to be resolved. Like I said, it's a great episode because it shows that it's all about codes and honor, and these guys are like anybody else, man. If all of a sudden someone thinks that you know their boyfriend or girlfriend cheated on them with the boss, they're going to go after the boss, even though Chris realizes if he does anything, Tony's going to kill him. And uh, he should thank Steve Buscemi for getting him out of the hot water because he's able to discern the fact that, yes, nothing happened between the two. And the real knockout punch comes actually from um, Adriana when she's talking to her friend and says, you know, Chris was lucky it wasn't him because if it was him, I would have killed him. You know, even though she sustained this horrible accident and the pain and suffering she's incurred, she completely and freely admits if the shoe was on the other foot, she would absolutely execute Christopher if he was out at night, 3 a.m. with some girl looking to score cocaine. So it's a it's really good gut punch there at the end. One more episode to talk about, written by uh, Matthew Weiner and directed by Peter Bogdanovich. That's right. Ben Mankiewicz's favorite, one of the great directors of the 70s. He was a recurring Sopranos actor, Elliot. Uh, this is actually an episode which he directed. 
And uh, it's a good episode. It's about more about my man Strathairn because Mr. Wegler here is using Carmela at least as much as she's using him. He's helping AJ's college grades while, she, you know, in addition to the fact he's sleeping with her. And, you know, you get this real sense of longing in both. The fact that Carmela finally likes to talk to somebody because, you know, he's this really smart guy. He's, he's the diametric opposite of her husband. He's cultured. He's soft-spoken. He's generous of spirit. He loves literature. He likes Madame Bovary. I mean, this could be about as different as, as anybody could imagine from Tony Soprano. And later on, she's telling Father Phil, something in me has been reawakened. Even if it never happens again with this man, just knowing that feeling of passion again, I don't know if it'll ever go away. And later on, it's Wegler who breaks it off as he tells her that you're stronger on me using the only weapon you have. And Carmela has that sad realization that whatever I say, whatever I do, because I was married to a man like Tony, my motives will always be called into question. So you've got Carmela's sad descent and her sad plight, and also Tony B, who's trying to go straight, but all of a sudden, bad luck, man. He finds a bunch of money, and then he gets sacked in the back to being a wise guy again. He buys everyone drinks at the Bing, gets a new suit and shoes, goes ahead and blows the money at the executive game. And that's why he realizes, you know what? Going straight here, this is not fun, working in some massage parlor. Eventually, he has a violent explosion against Kim, and his uh, former employer is bloodied, and it's just a big old mess. And afterwards, Tony B then goes to Tony Soprano and says, you know what, I'm ready to go back into business with you. And as Tony Soprano says, it's hard doing business with strangers as he's delighted that Tony B is going to go back now into the crime syndicate. That takes us halfway through season five of The Sopranos. Thank you so much to Brian Raftery. Seriously, go buy his book. Best movie year ever. How 1999 blew up the big screen. Keep those subscriptions coming. Please do subscribe. Tell all your friends. And go ahead and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's fall movie season, and that's why I'll see you at the movies.